0: If anyone's freezing, I'm trying to work on that. <laughs> I set it at like 74, and somehow it got down to 67. So uh, get snugly close. Um, I don't know if, what happens to you. Like maybe once a year you forget your watch or you leave your phone or whatever. Today, it's my once a year time to forget my glasses. So if I sound a little bit remedial, um, bear with me. But uh, I don't know if it's because I have, um, you know, uh, European um, connections and relationships and family that they feel so open. But I grew up with a very vivid awareness of the ugly American syndrome. But um, I I don't know how many of you have traveled abroad. There's a little bit of of, um, an aura we have a, a way of putting off. There's a little bit of an attitude that we have. But I'm just curious to hear from you how would you say, and Mary, the foreign-born uh, child here, you, you can speak, you're among friends, uh, what would be some of the things that would be defining as an American? Good or bad? Friendly, right. Friendly. very outgoing. My Norwegian relatives would say, you Americans would say, think that everyone's your best friend, and you, you're the ones on the street corner smiling and giving everyone hugs. I'm like, switch so point. That's a good thing. You Norwegians are super snobby and act like you don't know anyone. What else? Loud. Wow. Loud. I thought that too. Uh, and then I spent three weeks on an international mercy ship in the Ivory Coast of West Africa, where there was like every tribe and nation was gathered. And I always thought the Americans were the loud ones. But I think Swedes are pretty loud too. Uh, what I find is they get louder when they find their own kind. And so, like, wow, all these Polynesians are super loud, but they smile the biggest, I think. Anyway. Opportunistic. Yeah? Okay, like that. What else? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> and that's part, and that's a validating thing. You Americans speak one language, and you assume that everyone else can speak English. it is i mean if it's good enough for jesus it's good enough for me (laughs) oh wait but i'm still spelling jesus with a g uh what else what else opinionated i don't know is uh, do filipinos have their own like opinion i mean do they do they care to share it Oh, they don't. So they're passive aggressive, we're opinionated, and passive aggressive. <laughs> but everyone's passive aggressive, human nature, right? Well, let me ask you a follow up question to that. Um, what is it then that might define our Christian identity? How is being a Christian maybe different than being an American? hope that Christ has put in us, and that idea that we can share that with others, that people are hopeless, and that, that we can have an opportunity to, to be that hope for somebody, even if it's about next stuff. And so the story is still being written. Today's tragedy is not the final word. There is hope because this life, this heart of mine, is not set in stone. God is still writing a story, and it is a story of redemption. So, yes, I think we have to break out of culture and understand that who I am in Christ is different than who I am as an American. What else? What do you think? I think American, it's very self centered. In Christ, it's about others. Western individualism and Western consumption make me the center of my universe. So trying to be a Christian is feeling a lot of times un-American. And so God, here's my prayer, (laughs) true confession, I'm not getting my needs met. You're not listening to me and I'm one of your most valuable, faithful customers, Lord. Or is that, (laughs) that's just me, sorry. But yes, this is part of the human condition. Well, Paul is writing to us from prison, and we're gonna talk about some identity politics tonight coming from Paul. We're gonna talk about why he's in prison, um, but we're gonna talk about why he's not terribly upset about being in prison, uh, because Paul starts to separate nationality, um, his education, his privileged Roman citizenship, from who he has become in Christ, which is so vitally important for us to live down the regret, to kind of shuck the the sort of things that might trip us up or the things that we might rely on more than God to say, who I am in Christ trumps all other things. Now, I want to start by going back first and I want to start and, and if maybe you've got a, a outline tonight I just left some places for you to jot some notes but we're going to look around at a couple of different scriptures I want to start in Ephesians one uh, because he started a prayer uh, and then we're going to primarily look at uh, uh, at acts chapter twenty one so if you have uh, like a Bible you want to fire open go to acts twenty one but let me just start by saying this when when Paul started writing this was a, again just to review a letter that he was writing um, not as a rebuke or a correction he was writing because they were doing something well and this was a, a, a multicultural group of people who are now identifying with Christ and the things they were doing was integrating well so people from all walks of life rich and poor and all colors of life nationalities were coming together and it's interesting the vision for God's church God's salvation was now being birthed really outside of Jerusalem and outside of a Jewish context now there were some Jews that were there but it was really being birthed as God intended it in this multicultural community so uh, he writes and begins and starts praying a prayer and what we learn from this prayer is that they're doing well and yet there's still a need to pray So let me just pause right there. Prayer is is so much more than a tool for crisis management. Prayer is needed when things are going well. God, help me to steward my blessing. God, help me to steward my influence, my success, my health. Super important. And Paul prays while they're doing well. And it's in that that I want to just begin. We have this one. This is what we read a a few weeks ago. But Paul, um, beginning in, in... in uh, chapter 1 verse 17 says I keep asking that the Lord uh, I keep asking that the Lord our God uh, Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better super important way to pray when you don't know how to pray way to pray when you feel like you're not seeing answers. We pray for outcomes. We want the product. God is in the midst of the process. And he says, whatever you're going through in feast or famine, pray for wisdom and revelation. Why? Because you might know God better in the midst of it. Lest you take credit for it or blame God for it. God's in it. And so he prays, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better and I pray that the eyes of your heart may be uh, enlightened or opened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe oh so belief has everything to do like I believe the gospel story that power is the same Uh, as the mighty strength so um, Paul I wanted to kind of reset where Paul started and so the important part about this is that the Ephesians opens with this beautiful affirmation and extended prayer and they're doing well and the first three chapter Paul prays and tells us how the gospel changes everything not necessarily circumstances because it's very easy to go well I prayed and nothing's changed changes everything about our identity it changes everything about our hope changes everything that the story is still being written changes everything that whatever we're going through good or bad can still be redeemed and be a reflection of who God is the creator of all things Um, And and what I love to point out is that they are no longer defined by worldly success, by their mistakes, by regrets, by broken relationships, nor are they defined by their own nationality. Paul is writing trying to help them see this in an entirely new lens, as if they put on a, a new set of glasses and go, I see the world through God's eyes as God intended because the world the the lens that we're seeing everything through is through the broken reality that God didn't intend and so Paul having gone through this radical transformation this powerful conversion is now seeing himself through a whole new lens and he's trying to help them it's like he's handing his glasses over to these Ephesians can you see what I see well the problem is is that the Jews still didn't see what he sees and so he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. Um, but what happens when we turn, and, and we're going to go further into this, chapters 4, 5, and 6 get really, really practical. In fact, there's a lot of these and thous. It's a kind of a, a, a really directive part. And some people don't like to hear it because it feels like, oh, now you're getting up in my business. But... In order to be able to live as God has called us to as free people, when I say free, hearts free, not burdened, not enslaved, we have to understand our identity and how the gospel, the good news, has, it transforms us so that we can live differently. Otherwise, faith is just behavior modification. Otherwise, we're just trying to act nicer till next Sunday. And, and Paul's talking about something way more different because Paul has experienced something way more different. Um, so uh, when we see this, so for now, however, let's understand why Paul was in prison and where he was writing this, uh, why he was writing this letter. And the content, context adds so much understanding uh, to, to when, and, uh, when we know why he's now become a prisoner for the sake of us Gentiles. So Acts 21 um, starts to read like this it's Paul's arrival in Jerusalem so let me just give you kind of a a 30,000 foot view when you read Acts Acts um, is the story of the post Jesus era so the ascension has just happened and then there's some confusion but the disciples were all kind of scratching their head looking around and they said oh that wasn't like figurative that was literal you're literally gone And then the voice from heaven is like yeah get to work and and so um there's some confusion about the holy spirit but they start practicing they had these 12 disciples and they're like well we got to do it and they started sharing they started eating together they started praying together they started doing all the stuff that was remarkable and god was adding to their number well as people start to get saved they think well this isn't about us we got to go out and so they start sending people out and what acts does is it records missionary journeys in fact Paul had three of the missionary journeys. And there's a missionary journey to Corinth. That's why when you read a few books later, there's 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So what's happened is they, they whet your appetite with the missionary journeys, and then later he writes to them directly and he's teaching them. So what I want to do is one of his missionary journeys took him through Ephesus. But he's back in Jerusalem. And they're not a bit too pleased. And that's why he ends up in jail. So in, in chapter 21, verse 17, it says this. When they arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The brothers being the disciples. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the other elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God... had had done arrived uh, among the gentiles through his ministry when they had heard this they praised god they they said to paul also you see brother how many thousands of jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law what's the law the book of moses the torah it's the 613 commands it's all of the things that distinguish what does it mean to be a person of God and it was very detailed down to what you ate and namely circumcision and but they had you know dietary restrictions but they had cleanliness restrictions but it says they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs wait a second so if you're a Jew that's like saying you told it would be like someone telling us to stop following Jesus because if you're a Jew who was Moses he was the predecessor to Jesus who led deliverance out of 400 years of captivity slavery he leads them out parting of the sea goes up to sinai gets 10 commandments it becomes 613 commandments and it's like how are we going to follow jesus and be the most devout because we are god's chosen and now we hear that you're saying not to follow moses so they're livid with him and so his brothers his you know kind of partners in crime are like we get it we're cool with it but people aren't a bit too excited about what you've been telling all these other folks because you're basically saying be less Jewish and it's like that's not going to play here and then they said what shall we do they will certainly hear that you have come so do what we tell you there there are four men with us who have made a vow take these men join them in their purification um rights and the, and and buy and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved and blah, blah blah. And he goes on to this whole. It's part of the Jewish custom of cleaning. Well, basically, a bottom a week. The purification was for a week long. But after a week, they're ready to to stone him. Uh, th- 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 there's a riot breaking out uh, in this town because of what he's been doing. Now, here's what's really important. It says you teach. Uh, so so Paul comes and he's in jail but he's not writing to the Ephesians in any way mad, in any way complaining, or like he has sort of this axe to grind against his own kind, even though his own kind have put him in there. He's not throwing around his resume and his resume is really stout. He had privileged Roman citizenship. He was a theologian. He was a Jew. And all of that doesn't matter because of who he was in Christ. But before we get too excited about that and think, well, that's Paul, that's not me, Paul also had to live down this pronounced reputation for being the greatest persecutor in that era. Everyone knew. In fact, when he first came to Christ, they thought it was a trick because they're like, this guy stops at nothing to throw us in jail. He stops at nothing to torture us. So Paul, even though he's got all of these great marks in his like resume, like, I'm all that, And I've got citizenship, so you can't even touch me. No, he's like, man, I'm still trying to live this thing down. But the thing that has so transformed him is who he is in Christ. He is buried in Christ. He is hidden in Christ. So he's not got an ax to grind about his own people that have thrown him in jail. He's writing with great joy to the people that he had spent two years with. And he's like, oh, you guys are figuring it out. I am so proud. You've made all of this worth it. Imagine living with that kind of identity that it it starts to transcend your circumstances. God's in this as much as he's in that. Listen, if I go for a week or two weeks and I get a little down, I'm starting to go, God, where are you? I'm not catching breaks. And Paul's like, oh, dang, I wish I didn't get beat up. I wish I didn't have to get in prison. I wish I didn't have these shackles. But you guys are doing so well. This, this is the testimony of a transformed life. This is a testimony of a faith that goes way beyond circumstances. And whether it be our marital status or our net worth, whether it be our financial obligations or our prodigal wayward children who are giving us attitude or we can't control, it's, they're growing up and getting more independent. No, no, no. Faith in Christ alone, the story is still being written Hope lives and so Paul starts to say you teach all of these Jews uh, this is verse 21 to live among the Gentiles to turn away uh, in other words make them less Jewish telling them not to circumcise according to their law or essentially keep kosher (coughs) you're telling them it's okay to eat a cheeseburger that's really what it comes down to no I mean it's bigger than that verse 28 he says He has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. Well, they go on in verse 28, and he names this guy Trophimus, who actually is also named in in the book of, uh, because he's an Ephesian, right? He's from Ephesus. What did I tell you the first week about the temple? There's five courts. There's the inner holy of holies that once a year the high priest can go into with a rope tied around his ankle in case he falls over and we have to drag him out. The next is for the priests then the Jewish men then the Jewish women and then on the fifth court 19 steps or I think it's 19 steps below Gentiles. And now you're bringing Trophimus? Well this is now where they're just kind of gang. It's, It's like It's like uh, they're just trying to sling mud. We heard he went into the temple. Well, he he might have gotten close to it, but that didn't mean he went into it. But all of a sudden, they're getting outraged by all these things because why? He's not one of us. Paul, why are you making this so easy? Well, what did Jesus say? Come follow me because my yoke is useful. My burden is light. Paul is picking up on the yoke, which was a rabbi's interpretation of the 613 commands, and saying, let's make this doable. Let's make this workable. But let's take the weight of legalism off of this and make this thing loving. And so what Paul does and why he's in prison is simply for making salvation accessible. Send that guy to the slammer. And I'm like, how, and, and, and to see Paul not be too phased by it is remarkable to me. And so their ethnicity, their religious traditions kept them from seeing God's salvation for all people. And their identity was God's chosen people. And I use that term loosely because apparently chosen people, God's chosen people was sort of, well, what are you chosen for? You know, is it you're chosen instead of or you're chosen to make known? no, I'm choosing you because I want the world to know. Or, no, he chose us, so it's just us. Which is it? Because you are God's chosen people. Are you chosen because God loved you more, or are you chosen to love others more? Come on now. And so you're God's chosen. How are you stewarding your privilege? That's really at the heart of the issues. And these ancient Hebrews missed it. Paul got it. But I would contend that part of why Paul got it is because he had, he had gone so far the other way. I mean, he was extreme. This wasn't a mild conversion. But Paul turned a radical corner. So now, turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 3. Now that we understand why Paul's in prison and that he's writing without an ax to grind, he's writing with some joy, even though this identity politics are a play, listen to how he started the verse, you know, in chapter 1, that prayer. And what was the prayer? Wisdom and revelation. So that you might know God in all things. But he was indicted. His crime was that he was making salvation accessible and available. He picks up now on the prayer in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we start to read these words. And he says, and this is from the New Living Translation. I don't know what, but it just read so well. I normally read out the, the New International Version. But listen to what it says. When I think of all of this... I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have, I love this, the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too, greatly, too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we can ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ through all generations forever and ever, amen. Holy cow, Paul just picks up momentum and he starts to talk about the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. Now, let me just comment a little bit on this prayer. There are, there are some differing views about Paul's prayer and what exactly he's referring to. Some scholars would say, well, it's, uh, it's which seems most apparent, it's about God's love, because he said, God's love. How high, how wide, how deep, how long is the love of God? Others would say, because just a few verses earlier, he talked about manifold wisdom, which means that there's multi-sided wisdom to be learned, as if, like, because Greeks were really into cognitive knowledge. And so the the way to know God is through wisdom and understanding and learnedness. And and so we need to outlearn culture or ethnicity or even our religious traditions. The third maybe interpretation of this would be oh Paul's talking about the vastness the expanse of creation and when God took and and created like order out of complete chaos well what is it is it is it knowing the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love is it knowing all of that about God's wisdom is it knowing all about the creation story yes take your pick. I don't think it really matters because what really matters is, is as we uh, like, as we see this play out, um, he's he's. Uh, I, I love this because he says. He's imprisoned by his own kind, making salvation available. And he doesn't seem mad at the least bit, but he's aware of his own past as the persecutor. And Paul doesn't see himself as just a Jew or a theologian because he sees his life hidden in Christ. And the point is God is so much bigger than citizenship. God is so much bigger than our liturgy. God is so much bigger than our culture. So who are you? Who are you? Strip away all the things that kind of describe you. Who are you? That's a super important question when we're trying to say yes to Christ, when we're answering faith questions. Let me just pause. I want to share a story with you. Some of you might be familiar with this. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, Adolf Eichmann. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was the chief architect of Hitler's genocide during World War II what what started was we are going to create a whole mobilization and and kind of he he created initially all the ghettos uh and it wasn't just the jews but it was you know it was the gypsies and it was the uh it was anyone with um birth defects and on and on and he was the one to say we got to create like spaces for these people and then what what became they they moved it from uh And, and that's where it grew into genocide. Is they moved it to kind of let's concentrate these people together to let's move them to gas chambers and extinction. Well, he fled after the war, and he wasn't caught until 1960. He was living just 12 miles outside of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And they went in and found him, and and and, and, and arrested him, and he was taken back to Israel, and he went through a court proceeding. And they called this guy, and, and I was reading about this, and it. Um, there's, a, there's a famous fa- phrase that came out of it, but uh, it, in 1960, he went to trial, and among the witnesses called to testify against Eichmann was a small, haggard man named Yahiel Dinur. He had survived the brutal torture in the death camp at Auschwitz. Diener entered the, camp, uh, the courtroom, and he stared at the man who had presided over the slaughter of millions including many of Diener's own (laughs) friends and family. As the eyes of the victim met with the mass murderer, the courtroom felt silent. Then, suddenly, Diener literally collapsed to the floor, sobbing violently. Was he overcome by hatred? Was he overcome by the memories of the stark evil that Eichmann had committed? No. As Diener explained later in a riveting interview on 60 Minutes, what struck him was that Eichmann did not look like an evil monster at all. He looked like an ordinary person. And just like anyone else in that moment, Diener said, I realize that evil is endemic to the human condition. That any one of us could commit the same atrocities. And in the remarkable conclusion, which has now become a very famous phase, Diener said, Eichmann's in all of us. In other words, there's all blood on all of our hands. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. See, it's very easy for us to categorically talk about those people. That kind. Well, if they would work harder, they wouldn't be in that situation. If they would be more grateful, I might be more willing to help. If I would only just get a little recognition, I wouldn't feel so taken advantage of. No, no. Who are we living our lives for because it needs to be an audience of one. So when we come into a living faith that talks about how we learn to love, which is a great New Year's resolution to have. We talk about weight or we talk about goals and ambition. I never hear anyone talk about this year I want to grow in my ability to love like God, which is always outward in its expression. So we have a yoke here at Mission Hills and we call them rhythms and this series is about learning to zag if the world zigs we want to zag and we need to know God and believe in the good news and as we understand who God is uh, we emerge with I think a new identity like Paul we want to make salvation accessible we want to make it accessible to our kids that's what I wanted for my children because I was so worried about raising church brats. I was so worried about living in this microscope or this fishbowl of being a pastor's kid and, and him hating church and, and not following. No, I, I couldn't be more happy with how things were. Because we wanted to practice a living faith. We wanted to make salvation available. But think about friends. Think about people of peace. Think about, think about your foes. God can redeem even their stories because he can redeem Paul's he can redeem mine and so it always starts with you personally experiencing how deep and how wide how high and how long is the love of Christ and when we can experience that love that's changed from the inside out and that starts to form a new identity those might just sound like words, but that should have a way in which we give our lives away. See, whenever, whatever we've had to endure, whatever we've had to live through or even live down, God redeems all things. And when he redeems all things, here's what happens in our story. God begins to give us a fluency. And what I mean by that is he gives us a way to talk about our past. He gives us a way to talk about the difference he's making. If we would pay attention, God is taking our past, he's taking our experiences, he's taking all of those things and as we begin to understand the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of God's love for us, it starts to radically shift who we are. And it helps us speak to the things that feel empty, feel meaningless, feel like blessing, feel like prosperity. We're able to put a fluency of words to what the story God has been writing in our lives. And I think we need to learn the language of good news um, simply by applying it to some of the bad news in our lives. So let me just ask you a few questions as we close. And, and, And that would be this. Did you used to care mostly or only for yourself? like every other adolescent, like every other child? Did you used to see yourself as the center of your life? Because uh, my question is, is how is compassion, because we know God is compassionate, how is compassion beginning to shape that in you, right? We now practice compassion because God is compassionate. And now I can start to tell my story is, why do you help these people? Um, Because they're no different. They just have a different set of needs than my own. And so compassion becomes a normal response because of how God has been so compassionate and patient with me. Was there a time in your life that you used to work and think, oh, I earned it, I even deserve it. But now the generosity of God has softened your heart and you're like, oh my God, it's only by God's grace that I have this. It's only by God's grace that I was afforded a first world, first rate education. It's only by God's grace that I have my health, that I have the savings account or retirement account. Oh my God! So sharing, giving—I can't not do that. Or maybe some of you have said, "Man, I used to not—I used to have a hard time making room for other people because I was too interested in myself, or I really had a hard time learning to receive from anything." And and maybe the hospitality of God has shaped you because. I mean, if you can't learn to receive, how can you learn to receive God's forgiveness, right? And now God's putting people in your life that are trying to give to you. Did you once turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the margins? But now you're like, I have this growing awareness of God's presence. God is shaping something new in me. And it's like, I can't not, not do something Do you find yourself thinking about margins more? See, this is the testimony of a changed life, but it doesn't come because we're like, okay, act nicer, volunteer more. No, no, no. This is an identity shift once we understand how wide and how deep, how long and how high is the love of God. And Paul, in the midst of jail, thrown in by his own people is like, oh, you guys are doing so well. Because they're getting Christ on an identity level this isn't a Sunday go to church level this isn't a just put on your best face this is this is DNA shifting and so we're able to see with a, a whole new lens and so people who have looked at him for harm beat him down falsely accused him he's like oh no it's okay God sees God sees let's pray together our Father in heaven, I am just amazed at the work you're doing in each of these folks here. The the openness, the willingness, even the hunger to be used by you, the availability uh, of your church, and so. God, we just pray your kingdom come in Austin as it is in heaven. We pray your kingdom come in our hearts as it is in heaven. So I pray that we would not only experience the depths of your love, but it would begin to shift the way we view the world, the way we view our blessing and our needs, the way we view another. I pray that the testimony of the church was, man, those people know how to love. They love well. Um, They make room and they know how to receive. I pray that you would continue to write a story of transformation in our hearts, in our homes, in our minds, and then in our city. And so would you just kind of breathe and fan into flame a movement, a a wildfire that, that just not just grows our church numerically, but sets our hearts on fire that we can't not stop, that we can't not help, that we can't not give, that we can't not intercede and pray for may our circumstances not define us but may our faith so ground us in the reality of your presence that it shapes us and it transforms us help us to know you in an intimate way and then give us a fluency to talk about the difference that you are making we pray this in the strong name of Jesus